0: Hi everyone, before we kick off today's episode, we just wanted to take a moment to say thank you to all of the listeners that have liked, subscribed and followed the podcast. It means a lot to us and if you haven't done so already, please subscribe and follow us on our social media channels. Now, for the latest episode. Welcome to Pitchside Perspective Podcast with your hosts Stuart Sharples and Jack Colazar. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Pitchside Perspective Podcast. Today we have truly a special guest joining us, a trailblazer in the world of professional football and a first of his kind, Sammy Lander. Sammy is not just your average coach, he's the pioneer of the groundbreaking role in football, the first ever substitution coach in the game. Today we're diving deep into his journey, exploring the challenges, the triumphs and the unique responsibilities that come with being a substitution coach. Get ready for an exclusive look behind the scenes as Sammy shares insights into the strategic art of substitutions and how it's changing the game. Whether you're a coach yourself or just a regular diehard fan, this episode is sure to give you a fresh perspective on the beautiful game. Talking about bench warmers, Jack, how are you, mate?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, I was I was feeling good until that then, but yeah. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just
0: reliving the truth. I heard you were on the bench <laughs> nine times out of ten.
1: 9.9 times out of ten, yeah. Um... But yeah, this is going to be interesting, I think. It's going to be a good one.
0: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this episode. It's, uh, like we said, a a trailblazer and a complete new role that until a few weeks ago I hadn't heard of. So I'm really interested into hearing Sammy's insights. Um, But obviously we're uh, we're filming with a time difference this week again of uh, talking to somebody back home in the UK. So I haven't gone for a beer this week, but I have gone for a Peruvian nice, silky, smooth coffee. I'm not sure about yourself. Uh, I have an Italian blend coffee. So a Peruvian um, yeah. and an Italian. We'll have we'll have a, a mixture of that. I'll, I'll take that. So Jack, your turn this week uh, for the trivia question. Uh, I'm looking forward to this one. Your question is always pretty tricky, but uh, I'm hoping I can have a, a good crack at it this time.
1: Yeah, trying to stay on topic. This week's topic is substitutions. So there have been seven players to score more than 15 goals after coming off the bench as a substitute in the Premier League. So can you name the seven players that have come off the bench as a substitute in the Premier League um, and have scored more than 15 goals in their career doing that?
0: Oh, I love this one. Keeping it on topic and definitely uh, a few are springing to mind already. Um, but I think uh, I think I might need Sammy's help with this one. But uh, yeah, I'll have a little think and we'll uh, we'll come back at the end. Um, but no, really uh, happy uh, and excited to introduce Sammy. Sammy, how are you, mate? I'm very,
2: very well. Thank you, Stuart. I'm excited to be here and chat football, chat substitutions and uh, answer these quick fire questions that I've got some good answers for.
0: Exactly. What what uh, What is better out there than chatting about the thing we love in football, right? There's nothing better. So, uh, no, really, uh, really happy to have you on. And yeah, as you said, Jack's uh, ready with his five quick so fire questions.
1: Uh, yeah, the, the five quick or not so quick fire questions. <laughs>
2: um, first of all, name? Savvy Lander. Favourite team? Boring an answer, but I support managers more than I support teams.
1: OK, favourite manager?
2: Uh, Gasparini, Bielsa, Ralph Rangnick.
1: Wow. Um, favorite ever sporting memory.
2: Um, it's a great question. Probably be personal. Uh, where I've been involved in the in the game. So either when we achieved promotion with my hometown club, Weymouth, to to reach the national league, or when there was the first substitution goal as part of like this concept that I sort of created.
1: Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, favorite ever kit.
2: Great question, this, and I think it's so tough. And I suppose what I associate with these kits is almost like players in the kits, and that's yep. what sort of draws me to them. Definitely. Um, so Barca 97 is is the one where I think of, like, Ronaldo, and, and that, that era is just, yeah, unbelievable.
1: Yeah, the kit and the icon that goes along with the kit, I think, is a big... That's
2: exactly it, yeah, the player in the shirt. Uh,
1: best player seen live?
2: Uh, I've got two again. I've got Paul Pogba. Um, when he was at France, I watched him at Wembley play against England. And again, it was a bit of a younger Paul Pogba, but I really enjoy his style. He was very, looks like a daddy long legs, but at the same time is the most in control and, and so good in tight areas. Uh, and then the other one is Moussa Dembele for Tottenham. Um, lucky enough to watch him a couple of times, the CDM. And uh, he was just, yeah, he just, it fascinates me to watch because I, I sometimes think that he doesn't even know what he's going to do and then he pulls out something that's, that's unbelievable.
1: Yeah, a couple of massively talented players there, I think. So maybe maybe not always the most consistent duo, but in terms of mm. talent and ability, they're, they're right up there. A little a bit, bit more street
0: football as well, in a way.
1: Yeah, and both, yeah. both really strong physically as well. Yeah, Dembele had, yeah, I
0: think, yeah. one or two years where he was unstoppable and i think it was just before he moved yeah. out to to Adria. he was awesome he was he was looked at like the top top teams he was a great player yeah
2: yeah big fan
0: but uh, some interesting uh, some interesting answers there. i think some unique ones which i i like that rather than the i think every guest we've had has been messy 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 and it's like no, we want <laughs> we want the interesting ones so messy no. messy
1: Messi and the arsenal dreamcast on oh, no, the arsenal O two 2 uh burgundy we've
0: had that a few times <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, it got to be different, business. otherwise you just blend in. Exactly, I love that. I love that. So, uh, so Sammy, I'd I'd love to kind of start right back at the start of your uh, your journey, um, and if you could just kind of briefly like let us know how you kind of got from where you were to how where you are now. Uh,
2: so I started. So I always played football. Um, it was always obviously my, my main sport. Played other sports. Did a bit of basketball and hockey. Um. and and quite good athletics, but I lost the sight in my right eye um, at a car crash when I was 10, 11. Um, And that, that sort of threw my whole physical development, you know, by, by years really. And that, that moment, it would have been very, very tough for me to sort of have a career in professional football, because, you know, being on a pitch, and I found this out when I played in a charity game for AFC Bournemouth was, I was playing left wing back and uh, I I couldn't see anything out my right. So made it, (laughs) made it very difficult. Um, to, to sort of see see the game. And so, for me, you know, it was always going to be a tough tough way to, to, to make a career out of playing football when when I'd sort of had that adversity. So, it was about what's the next best thing. And for me, it was, was coaching analysis, scouting. And that's sort of where my journey started, where, where I started looking at those opportunities.
0: Well, that's definitely uh, definitely a, another unique story as well. Yeah. Um, and you, you think, right, you're playing on the left-hand side and you probably couldn't see that whole other side of the field. So, wow, fair play yeah. to you. Yeah. Yeah, they could have at least they could have at least put you on the right so you could see inside a little bit. <laughs> well, the thing is that I was I was
2: in this team of AFC Bournemouth legends, and I, I didn't I was only sixteen. I didn't quite have the authority to go in and ask <laughs> ask some of the lads to take a back seat while I go and put myself in the position.
0: <laughs> so yeah, so from those those football playing deeds, um, was it a route of getting into the coaching side that kind of got the the bug of the love of the game?
2: Yeah, so it started for me with recruitment.
0: I was, um, I was a scout up
2: in Brentford um, just while I was doing my university degree at UCFB Wembley. Um, I was doing coaching and business, so that sort of just came alongside it, a little bit of scouting. Uh, then the academy closed, so I came down to Bournemouth, which is originally where I'm from, uh, and was offered an internship to go and do recruitment in their academy, um, and then that materialised into a, into a job. Um, so that that's where it started but then as you start getting in the door you start then get more opportunities to be like oh you know do you mind doing this little bit of analysis work or you know do you mind going to scout the under 18 opposition and do a little bit of opposition work and then it's all of a sudden analysis and oh you know coach is called in ill this evening do you mind you know stepping in and doing a session and I think yeah Bournemouth that Bournemouth Academy gave me an opportunity to almost experience all the roles um, as well as even things like sports science you know going to talk to those guys nutrition you know, administration, just everything in football, and that—that's when I sort of resonated with with coaching the most because it was the thing that that I, I got probably the most buzz and passion
0: from. How important was that that internship, right? A lot of I find a lot of coaches nowadays don't really want to push themselves for free or to go in like volunteer their time, but that internship surely for you was kind of like that foot in the door moment
2: massively yeah because like at the time like I, I live in a tiny town called Shaftesbury you know there's a Costa there's a Tesco's the nearest football clubs Weymouth Bournemouth you know over an hour away we're not blessed with opportunities in football in footballing around here so yeah to be offered this opportunity at the time for me was like the biggest thing in the world I couldn't believe that i had been given this like unbelievable opportunity and I, you know I've got to jump in and take it and yeah for me it probably where it started because I'm, I'm even friends with people that that I met in that year and at Bournemouth now you know, so so it's it's definitely built who I am today as a person as well.
0: well that's amazing. And obviously you, you said you had a, a variety of different roles at, at AFC Bournemouth and it was a case of just like dipping your toes into different areas. Was there a, an area of, of what you were doing that you thought, yeah, I really like that or no, I'm not quite into that part, but I want to maybe do a little bit more of that.
2: The two that stood out the most for me were opposition analysis I found that really, really interesting to sort of just be given a brief. Obviously we understood the AFC Bournemouth way. So to be given a brief of a team and say, you know, create a game plan about how we're going to beat them and present it back in a week, you know, that sort of thing for me, like, you know, lick my lips at that. That's such an an interesting task for me to tackle. Um, And then the other one was coaching. Like there's just nothing like being on the grass, you know, fresh group of lads coming in, um, you know, or, or females, you know, coming in to coach and, um, Having a topic, having a plan, being deliberate with how you achieve that, you know, all the little things that come sort of associated with it. It's just a real, yeah, it's a real, real buzz for me.
0: Yeah. So I guess, like you said, it's learning different parts and, and the coaching side and the opposition side, especially in today's modern game, go hand in hand with each other. The analysis side of the game is now so important. And there's been many coaches out there that talk about the, the specialist roles that are out there. And obviously we're going to touch on it a little bit more later on, but like that analysis side of the game, I think over the last 10, 15 years has become so important towards youth team managers all the way up to the first team level. So when you were, when you were going through the, the analysis part of the game, what were some of your biggest learning uh, blocks and, and some challenges that you faced?
2: Yeah. So great question. So from, AFC Bournemouth, I actually met um, a manager called Mark Molesley, who who was the 23's manager at the time, so he might have been where Phil Keane was, um, but but he then left to go to Weymouth, um, which was Southern Prem, so step three in the non-league, uh, and, he, and he said, you know, we need an opposition scout, you know, I hadn't done a little bit of work for them at Bournemouth, you know, he was like, would you be interested in coming over to Weymouth and, you know, we'll send you out, we'll send you £15 to, to go and watch the the teams and and you know you can go and create these reports and help us in training so i was like yeah like, absolutely like unbelievable um and then that was the that was the moment where it was like like became very real because it now wasn't for necessary development it was very much like you know we have seven eight hundred fans who are booing us at 35 minutes if we're not winning so you know i've got i've got to present information back that you know very accurately um and naturally you know because we were step three we didn't have footage you know you might have some youtube highlights that, that might have given you a little bit of a an insight to a set piece, but ultimately it was me going to the ground. So, you know, it was having fans around me when I'm trying to scribble in my notepad. You know, it was raining and then all of a sudden my notepads went through. So trying to do it on your phone and it's the little things. But you know, that's what I say is what creates you. That, you know, they're all that sort of character building moments where you've got to find ways to, to solve it, resilience. And um yeah, it's sort of been a really good learning curve. And when I look back now and talk about it now, like it's mad to think I was there. And how far it's come, and hopefully how far it will go. But been a, yeah, been a really, really good, good journey.
0: Yeah, I think when it comes to that opposition analysis, I feel like some people don't realise what the the true grit of it actually is in terms of driving endless hours to games, and you're sat there, you're packed in front of maybe a few hundred people around you, or maybe no one around you, and you're just that lost soul out there writing down that note. <laughs> How did you? How did you kind of find um, the different in, in, uh, environment between like being in that like crowded area to then being where you're driving and you're like, what, what, what am I going to get at the end of it? And it's pouring down with rain and stuff like that. Mm. And there's surely there was times where you're like, yeah, I don't want to be doing this anymore. I just want to be coaching.
2: Uh yeah, but at the same time, I knew that I think I was like eighteen at the time, so I knew that it was going to be tough for me to to walk into a coaching role at a level that I wanted to be at, you know, without a little bit of earning your right and, and a little bit of sort of legacy behind you or, or you know, an evidence that you can be successful. So for me, it was like a challenge. It was like, it's raining, but how good can I make this report? And, and you know, how good is it going to feel when we win the league? Because, you know, we won the league that year. And I think that for me, the motivator was always bigger than the, the challenge. So for me, it never, never, yeah, it was never too... Difficult. I'm sure at the time, maybe I felt a little bit harsher. But when I look back, I, yeah, I think it was some of, the, some of the best times.
0: Yeah. So that time at Weymouth then, that really kind of propelled you into this this role that you're starting to look to create, obviously towards a substitution coach. Um, so then that mixture of opposition analysis, that assistant coach part, obviously you talked about your, promo- uh, your promotion. Surely that's got to be one of your highlights, right, so far of your career. Um, yeah, definitely.
2: So we, obviously we're in step three, which is Southern Prem. So we're playing like local sides with, with crowds of four or 500. And then we won that league. And then we went straight into the National South where we then won the playoffs. And then we went straight into National League. And not only did Weymouth sort of propel into these leagues, where we're playing now Wrexham, Notts Counties, Hartlepool, Stockports. And, you know, we were still part time. We didn't have a kit man. You know, our, some of us were on like 30, 40 quid a week. You know what I mean? We we're coming up against Notts County. And Barnett had about fifty grass pitches. And we we on a Tuesday, we trained twice a week. We on a Tuesday shared a pitch with Blantford, you know, a local team. We didn't even have the use of a of a 3G. So yeah, that came with its own challenges. But thankfully for me, I also did enough to, to get promoted within Weymouth. So I sort of went from opposition analysis to, to first team coach. So for me, it was as much as a promotion because I was sort of developing myself alongside you know, Weymouth developing as well. So it was, it was really, really good. And then that last year where uh, I started getting named as a substitute because we, we, you know, we couldn't fill benches and stuff like that. That That's when that light bulb moment came and I was like, you know, wow, like if other subs are feeling like this, there's definitely something we can do around it.
0: Yeah. So it was interesting. You mentioned it because I was looking during the week and you talk about your light bulb moment. I'd love to hear more about what actually happened about how, you were a coach, but you were named on the bench. So Yeah, I would love to hear more about how that actually happened.
2: Yeah, so we, I we, uh, don't know if it happened in the US, we in England went through a thing called furloughing where, where certain, you know, we couldn't afford effectively to keep players because we were in COVID. And like you said, we were part-time anyway. So we were stringing everything together to try and make it happen. So we had to furlough some players, which meant, we would have 13, 14 players. You know, we would have our 11, maybe a backup goalie and, and someone who would be able to play three or four positions. And we were coming up against Hartlepool, who were a typically bigger side. Um, and we just wanted to fill our bench. So I get a call in the morning saying, hey, Sammy, getting a little bit earlier today, like we're just going to go through some stuff. And obviously as a first team coach, I didn't think of anything about it. I was like, all right, like, make sure my stuff's ready. Get in and I walk in and there's this big Lander shirt, number 13 on the wall. And I'm thinking like, I'm in here, like, this is the start of the career, like, this is it. And then Brian Stock was the manager, he goes, like, you're on the bench today, like, make sure you're ready. And uh, I had shorts, I had socks, I had shinies on, I had my boots on, shirt was on ready, and I was tuned into the game because I was coaching still, but, you know, I had a big puffer on, it was November, so it was freezing cold, I had jelly babies, that I was sort of snacking on, and I, I was never ready to go and sort of win us the game, if, that, if that's what that came down to. But, yeah, that, it was that moment where the striker went down, Brian Stock turned to me and he said, like, you ready to come on? And I was like, Jesus, like, you know what I mean? Like trying to get myself ready, like open a gate, close a gate, just trying to make some sort of movement with my body. And luckily the striker jumped up and he was fine. But I was like, oh my God, like, if I feel like that, there's got to be like so much more around this role that other players are feeling and and experiencing and all that sort of thing. So yeah, that, that exact moment was the light bulb and it sort of snowballed into this much larger concept from there.
0: Wow, what a story that was. Imagine coming on Ooh. and winning the game against Hartley That would have been an even better story. But uh, <laughs> so what was then so you've had this light bulb moment, you've realized right, I'm I'm I could be on in the next 30, 60 seconds and I'm really not prepared. So what was kind of the the next steps to delve into this role? So it went yeah, it went from there, it almost went in like different directions while all
2: being linked with the substitute. So at first I was thinking about physically like surely this isn't the norm surely every sub doesn't just wait until their time is and then jump up and go and reach their top speed inside 10 seconds like surely that that's not the norm and, and it is you know what i mean it is like there's no real demand there's no real accountability for the warm-ups that happen down the touchline so and at, at national league you know you're not, it's not like you're allowed to sports scientists down there or anything like that and particularly when you're away from home the fans are about a yard away from you so you don't want to be down there as long as you know, you can because you're getting pelters. So you just get down and get up as quick as possible. Um, So, yeah, that was the first thing was like physically, how do we prepare players better? Secondly was like not the emotional side, but maybe psychological side is better. So I was just buzzing to be a substitute because it was as close as I'd come to playing, but there were some players who had started all season. So when they sort of become a substitute, how do they deal with that that barrier and that challenge that's not quite normal to them yet? Um, technically again like they're asking me potentially to go on and play I hadn't touched the football for about an hour you know half time we did a bit of two touch and we did a little bit of a passing diamond and a warm-up but that's not the same as you know whipping a ball in on, on a 50 pence so that we go and score a winning goal so it's like how do we technically prepare them and then finally it's just tactically as it was the last sort of thing I looked at was was how can I come on and read our pressing shape read our opponent's triggers and you know, stay in tune with the game so that when I do come on, that transition is, is really seamless. So, yeah, it's it sort of like went in loads of directions, really. And sort of each direction, I think, had its own layers that, that I wanted to sort of add to it.
0: Yeah, it seems like there's so much can kind of go into it. I feel like when fans are watching it at home on the TV, it's like, oh, just run up and down the line a few times. just like old old school Sunday league. Like, like you said, open the gates, close the gates, a few sidesteps. <laughs> it's almost one of those that you pretend to stretch on the uh, on the, the barriers to the side um yeah. so when you've done this research obviously you've then looked to kind of grow this role um and then the the role at afc wimbledon came up um talk to us a little bit more about how that that afc wimbledon job came up and this is really where you're starting to get into it right yeah so i've done obviously i'd had all these ideas you know how can we
2: affect a player physically how can we influence them emotionally psychologically how can we think about them tactically Had all these ideas but i didn't know necessarily substitutions needed to be fixed you know there's no data out there you can't go onto certain websites and data websites and look at substitution contributions or anything like that there's very very little data so i started going through loads of different teams thinking about you know how you could analyze effectively a substitute from a result perspective from a technical perspective you know physically and all the rest of it and, uh, and what that led to is I looked at Wimbledon's data and, and I found what I thought was a weakness. And I thought that there was an area that all of these sort of things and strategies that i would created might be able to influence this data. And um, through COVID, I, obviously, I've reached out to a lot of people, um, coaches like yourself, you know, just a 20 minute, 30 minute call. Let me pick your brains. I pitched the substitution idea a few times to those to those coaches. And one of the coaches I called with is Andy Parslow, who is a restarts coach. So he was at Wimbledon. Um, so I got him on the phone and just said, look, I think I've got this idea. It sounds a bit wacky uh, and I appreciate you. You don't know me from Steve. So I need you to trust me. And, um, you know, kind of, kind of come into the training ground, present to, to the staff and, you know, present this role about how I think I can do it better. And luckily, yeah, they—they they, Andy passed it on to, to Robbo, who was the manager at the time. And Robbo was the nicest man in football I've ever met and invited me in and I spent the day with Wimbledon presenting my stuff and talking to players and staff. And yeah, that, that was the, sort of the moment where I was like, you know, this is, this is what I believe I was made for. You know, I love, I love football at the lower levels. You know, I think it's so raw and passion, but I want to test myself against the best. And, and Wimbledon this day was like, wow, like I'm starting to get close to where I believe I can be. You were wondering
1: there about presenting to the coaches, but also the players too. What was, what was the player reaction um, to your ideas
2: player direction was very very good and and to this day I've, I've been fortunate enough that I've never had a player like ever even question question anything really like there's sometimes where they like to know the rationale behind it um, but as soon as you explain that they, they completely get it and the, and the main reason is is that you're solving their problems it, it's, you know I'm a coach I'm not a substitute I was a substitute for five games and so it's not my problem I, I don't have to go and reach my top speed after sitting on a cold bench for an hour like the problems that players are experiencing. So the the reason why I think players are so receptive to these ideas is because you're helping them solve a problem. If you're, if you're helping them become a better substitute, it's only going to strengthen their, you know, want to be in the start and 11 or their want to kick on and, and, you know, reach a better team. So yeah, but fortunate in a way, but, but at the same time, you know, it's because the problems that you're solving are very relatable to, to what they're experiencing.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think the more and more we speak to coaches at the top, top level, the more we find out that players, you know, see every coach as a resource and are very open to the idea that if I'm gonna be the best player I can, I need to use every resource and every coach and every method of improving that I can as well. So that makes sense they will be so welcoming to those ideas.
2: Mm. Yeah, completely.
0: So obviously you said the players were very accepting of this this idea. Was it a case as well as you spoke to a few managers and different people? Some people were like, Nope, I wanna do it my way brush it aside and some like you said at, at AFC Wimbledon were very receptive to it so ha, what would you say to to managers that are very route one directional in terms of I just want to do it my way I don't want to believe in this because I feel like some managers are uh, maybe carry an ego about them they're like well no I want to do it this way so it was a case I guess for you kind of finding the right mix of you want to find the coach that is going to believe in what you're trying to do. And like Jack said, it's about those small little margins, right, that you're trying to increase. And it might not be a, a 50% increase, but it might just be those 1% and 2% that you're trying to build on here.
2: Yeah, no. So so firstly, I obviously, when I first started this thing and I was talking to managers and just pitching a few ideas, I had a call with a league, I think he was league two manager at the time, and uh, I mean, the call must have been two minutes and he effectively said, like, wouldn't chase this idea. Don't think it's going to be a thing. You're in a good position. You know, I was 24, first team coach of National League. He was like, stick with that, you know, and you, you'll, you'll get where you want to be. But, you know, drop the subs thing. Don't, don't think it's going to be a thing. So I was a bit like, all right, like, that's a bit of a, you know, lead balloon. But at the same time, that was a sort of moment where you thought, right, I have to be deliberate with who I pitch to. You know, football is the game of opinions. It's, there's not going to be one thing for everyone. And I completely respect that, you know, that there's probably some things in football that I don't agree with. Um, so I don't, it's not like I hold anything against someone who who doesn't believe in the substitution concept. I just want to work for people who do believe it because it makes your buy-in and it makes the process so much easier. So then I changed my approach a little bit and was like, well, think of forward-thinking clubs, think of forward-thinking coaches, think of people who are open and receptive and your, your Brentfords, your Brightons, your Southamptons, like clubs where, they they want to be taught. They they want to have an education because they want to be the best they can with, with the resources that they have. And so that's when again my approach changed and my and my style changed a little bit because a little bit more about being deliberate with who you were, who you were presenting to. So yeah, that, that there's definitely been people who have who have resisted it. Um but but those conversations have never gone any further and I completely respect that because that's that's football. You know what I mean? So I think that's that's it. And just referring to the one or two percenters, like, again, I think I think it could even be bigger than that. I think, you know, if I tell you that I can get you four more substitution goals a season and you turn four 1-1 one, one draws into four 2-1 wins, that's an extra eight points a season, I think, from from quick math. So, you know, that, that eight points a season in a Premier League is worth, you know, two, three million pounds. I think is it 1.6 million per position now? So, you know, think about what that can do on then a, a bigger scale and 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 so I think, yeah, I think it can be, and now we move to five subs as well. I think it could be even bigger. I think those teams that substitute well would definitely have a distinct advantage.
0: Yeah, and I think the point you made there as well, like you look at the the stoppage time that we're getting this season, right? It's got, gone are the days of the two, three-minute stoppage time. You're now talking about mm-hmm. well over a hundred-minute game if you're taking the first-half stoppage and the second-half stoppage. You're talking some mm-hmm. games finishing at like 97, 98 minutes. And as you said, if you go and get four goals in a season that could be the difference between relegation staying up winning the league all of that it's it's huge um so you got yourself into AFC Wimbledon as a substitution coach what did your kind of like working week look like because obviously a lot of your your role is on that game day I'm assuming so what was like the build-up how did that look for you yeah so
2: it was I, I had roles to do in the week and again like to to bring it back a little bit when I was away if I was a coach you know that's the thing that buzzes me so as, as much as I love this substitution thing I'm a coach at heart I love being on the grass I love so, like sessions and topics and, and the way that you can design it so for me Monday to Friday would be trying to get involved as much coaching as possible you know in terms of even if it's just being a lino for the small-sided game at the end or a lino for the tactical, or you know feeding balls into the keeper as something any role you know I'll be all over because I just want to be on the grass surrounded by people like Robo who who is a fantastic coach and, and taking notes and learning from the language he's using, the sessions he's using and that sort of thing. So um Monday to Friday will be a little bit more traditional in the sense of a coach. Um, but you can still be observant of players. So for example, if we had a we had a game on the Saturday, player gets left out, a little bit of an attitude, that, that leads into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So before you know it, is that player now already affecting his selection for the next Saturday? because he's got a bit of a hangover from being a substitute on the Monday, Tuesday. So, you know, if you've got to be aware of that. You've got to be observant. And and I might spend a little bit more time around the substitute players in a session rather than the starters, um, because you want to be the energy and charisma and get back up with your energy levels and that sort of thing. And so that, can, that was consisted in those five days and, Additionally, like being a good substitute isn't is not like a it's not a given, it's a skill being a good substitute. So there's an education around it. So there might be days in which, you know, I have players in the office and we go through their clips and we say, Listen, you know, I think this, I think you come off a little bit and you were like wanting to make an impact, but because of that, you miss these sort of opportunities. And and so we go through clips and talk about how you could approach being a substitute a little bit differently. So that there were little sort of roles within the week that that you would carry out. But yeah, traditionally game days was would probably where I was most busy because you've got six, seven, eight substitutes to actually, actually sort of handle and and, and deal with. So, yeah, game days were were, were much busier, but um, it, it sort of you as long as you get your prep right in that Monday to Friday, it would make it Saturday easy.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Um, it's, it, I feel like it's got a lot to do around the, the psychological part of the game, right? Like you said, a player hasn't played for the weekend, so then that. That hangover almost carries into the first part of training that week. Um, so, is there a is there a bigger emphasis on the psychological part of the game when it comes to the the subs and obviously the the gaffer naming he's he's starting eleven and kind of saying look, Sammy, so and so is not going to be starting this weekend. So let's have a look at him from a psychological point of view. How they're going to handle it. The age difference, right? So maybe maybe an 18-year-old is, like you said, when you were on the bench at at Weymouth, you were just buzzing to be on the bench. But if you're a a season (laughs) pro, it's a case of, well, I'm a little bit pissed off right now that I'm not starting. So is that that importance of the psychological part of the game so important here? Massively, yeah. And first on that, I think each club that I've been into
2: have a favourite part of the concept. So Wimbledon and Robbo in particular loved the psychological aspect of, of the role. He loved that there was someone that the substitutes could go to or the finishers could go to. He loved that I was energetic. He loved that I have you know, a bit of charisma and positivity and, and 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 would try and uplift the people that I was with. And so he enjoyed the fact that I could be the energy, but a little bit harsh at times but understanding. You know, But I've been into teams that around this concept just much prefer the data side of things and, and don't want to know about the psychological. They just want to know how to make data-driven substitutes better so there's different aspects to it and it depends on the club and the manager and and the culture that's been created for me i think the psychological aspect is probably the biggest because i think you could have a player who's physically ready a player who's technically ready but if he feels like shit it's irrelevant how he feels in the first two things he's he's just going to be upset he's not going to feel confident he's not going to feel happy players who are smiling in my opinion are always the the better players are always going to play better be a better version of themselves so for me, it's about how you sort of create that and, and make that happen. And, and you're absolutely right. Like, There's been some 35-year-olds who who don't necessarily see substitution as, as that bad because, because they played the last 10 games. So they get a token substitution game for rotation, injury, whatever, and, and they're ha- more than happy to just buy into whatever process I've set up. The 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds who have just played every single under-18s game every single season have now come in and realised that they're going to be on the bench for 10 games and might get a couple of minutes at the end of each one. That's a big transition for them to sort of go through. So, um, yeah, it's, it's dependent with each player because there was also an example where we had 30-year-olds who had started their whole career and, and now physically starting to struggle a little bit. So, had to be a little bit more careful about how we played them. So, they were substituted a little bit more often. So, each player's journey is, is completely different. Um, and that's up to me to sort of recognise recognize the person behind the player as well and, and and find strategies to sort of keep them engaged and motivated.
1: So it sounds like you need to have a really good in-depth knowledge of each individual player not just as a soccer a football player but as a person and you know their emotions being able to read their emotions somewhat and almost um, yeah be a best friend sometimes as much as a coach
2: in terms of helping them with that psychological part. Yeah definitely definitely and like I said I think it's the thing that it is difficult because you've got to be so careful because you don't want to be too friendly with them Then it looks like you're sticking it to the manager and saying like, yeah, he's wrong. You should be playing. You know, you don't come across like that. You've got to come across that fine balance where it's like, I completely understand you're frustrated and and you want to be there. And I've got to be the person that's maybe listening to the manager and being like, well, I think we could do this to try and get you over there. And so you've got to be that sort of fine balance. But yeah, I think think being observant and, and understanding people, gives you such a power in this in this sort of role because you know that, that so there was a player as an example who was substitute quite often and you know is all he'd known he'd only ever been a footballer and so when you get told you're a substitute you know being a footballer is his identity so you are hurting his identity by saying the thing that you are is not good enough to start today and so that player like really struggled to understand that like his identity wasn't good enough so what we did around that was we built other identities so we had you know, he would come in. He'd be a substitute. The first thing we do is we just talk about his home life. We talk about where he went after dinner last night. We talk about you know other things in his life that he has, so that he's not defined by this being a substitute. Then all of a sudden, it comes back around to you know the bell going. We've got to go to warm up, and it's like okay, I can be a substitute because when I get home, I get to be a dad, and 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 tomorrow I get to be a you know a, a dad on the touchline with my son, and that's it. And it just helps you build a little bit more of a relationship with them and a little bit more of an understanding with them, and helps you sort of maybe apply the strategies again to them to, to, to keep them motivated and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. Cause at the end of the day, that they're, they're humans and they have these relationships and it's just about sometimes we have to ignore the fact that they're playing the sport for a career and for a profession. And it's a case of these are humans and you've got to talk to them as human beings. So I think you've, you've done very well there. So in terms of obviously you've got the game, you've got obviously the warm up before the game and, it's very unusual unless of an injury that there's going to be a sub in the first half. But as you're getting close to that half time, I'm assuming that's your first big element that you can kind of start having an emphasis on the rest of the game. So kind of if you can talk about like that half time and what you can be doing there and then what kind of happens in that second half as it's getting towards that famous 60th minute and the subs start playing a mind. What kind of is the the role that you're, you're partaking in that's getting it going? What's the process?
2: Yeah, so it's a good question. And uh, the thing I would say is the process for me starts Friday morning. So there's already a process uh, that started and completely underway in terms of Gaffer's done tactical shape. And without saying it, he's selected an 11 that he thinks going to be there. And the other 11 are a little bit like RC because they know they're not in the 11 that the Gaffer's working with. So that immediately is already where the process starts. And I'm in there giving energy, keeping them going, maybe chat, do a little bit of extras after. So, so that process has sort of already begun. In terms of the game, yeah, half-time, I think, is is the most crucial 15 minutes of that game that I think you'll get, because it's the only chance that you get, like you said, before the Magic 16, Magic 72 minute, the thing that managers talk about, to, to make these players as ready as possible, you know, in a physical sense, in a tactical sense, and in a technical sense. So, so without giving away too much, because you've got to be a little bit careful about the concept, but... Um, you know, you, you want to make sure, I always say it's like driving. When you do your first gear change, like if you're thinking about doing it. When you do your 101st gear change, you wouldn't even know when you've done it. It was just one of those natural things where your instincts intact with, within line with, with your knowledge. And so, how can you use half time to try and tap into that to be like, when you come on, that's not going to be the first 40 dive you've made since Friday's training. You, you've, you've hit 10 of those already at half time to make sure that the success rate that we're going to have in the second half, from a substitute is in line with what we're experiencing from a from a starter so yeah that 15 minutes is is so crucial in the process of preparing them tactically and technically i think
1: that's interesting and then so then when it comes to that time where substitutes are getting prepared ready to step on the field um i know me and i'm sure other people listening will think the same where at times you're watching a game on tv There's a substitute getting ready. First of all, they're not even ready. They're looking around for (laughs) putting their shin pads on, tying their laces, and everything like that, changing shirts. And then you'll see a guy with a, whether it be a tactics board or an iPad, whatever it may be, speaking to the sub. And the subs kind of not doesn't look at least like he's pay that paying that much attention. He's kind of looking around at the field and everything else going on. Do you think that those players, when you see that, do you see that and with a critical eye and think that's not right? That player isn't ready and they're, they're not prepared to step on that field? Or is that just us as a fan watching and maybe thinking the wrong things?
2: Yeah, no, I think I think it could be a little bit of both because, like you said, the, the person behind the player might be someone who responds to chaos really well. and And when the manager comes around and says, you've got 10 seconds to get ready, that might be the way that they like to deal with that situation. For me personally, I think there's a far more structured way you can have that. And uh, we always used to have this saying, and I've said it in other clubs since, you say shirt and shinies. You have to have your shirt on, you have to have your shinies on. Because when a player, well, when the gaffer turns around and says, like, coming on, the average substitute now gets 17 minutes. So if you spend two minutes getting your shirt ready, getting your trousers off, getting your bench coat on, listening to set pieces, like, you just killed two minutes of your game. Like, you already have a limited chance to go and impact it. You just wasted 120 seconds of it. So we always used to say, like, you've got to be shirt and shinies ready. And we had this metric that was sort of like designed. It was just called ready time. And it was how long it took for the manager to say, this player's coming on, to get through like the the transition of getting ready, coming to me, going to set-piece coach and getting to the gaffer. And, you know, we, we managed to bring that right down where it was, you know, uh, well, I think we got to a point where the average was about 30 seconds because the quicker you can get that player ready, the easier it is for them to, A, receive information that you're trying to tell them. So I used... um went into I went into England 21s and presented and, and referred to can't remember what player it was now uh, it might come to me but talking to a player who they said he was coming on and he had someone pulling his jumper off because his jumper got stuck around his wrist he was trying to talk to the set piece coach in his face he was trying to reset pieces he was trying to do his shinies and he was like in this like position you just think there's no way that he's taking any of this in you know what I mean and and I think that's a process and I don't think, again, it's detriment to them. I just think, I don't think many people would do well in that situation. So Absolutely. it's creating a process that that makes that transition for them into that game so much easier.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And um, I mean, I've been around uh, first team benches before where I've seen a manager ask for a substitute, that player not be prepared and actually go, you know what, forget it and pull, and <laughs> pull someone else up. Do you see <laughs> managers um, be frustrated often with subs? and And I guess if they are, then they, they need to be looking for someone like you to give them advice and, and to solve that issue
2: yeah I, I don't know if I see frustrations mainly because I think it's become the norm so so I think it's normal I don't think it's like oh our substitutes are taking ages to get ready but their substitutes are getting ready really quick I think the norm is that all substitutes take ages to, to get ready and go through this sort of like you know little getting the boots on not even done your laces yet got to do my hair need a gel like <laughs> and I think that, does, that
1: mean, that, does that mean a manager almost has to predict two or three minutes ahead of time what his substitute wants to be? He can't react instantly, can he, to something to a situation that he sees on the field?
2: Yeah, and I think the, the biggest thing you see at the moment is when a player goes down injured and he, they know he can't continue, but it's send the physios out because what that's going to do is give time for the subs to, to actually get ready. Then he's going to take ages walking off to the far side of the pitch. He's going to hobble. He's going to thank the ref. And then that's that time where you then get the sub ready to, to sort of make a difference. So, yeah, I don't think it's a frustration because I think, like you said, it, like I said, it's the norm. I think every every team is doing it. But I definitely think that there is an advantage to, to having those players ready. And building on that a little bit, we sort of have designed a way that we could be a little bit more player-driven with substitutions. So, obviously, Stu, you talked about the 60th minute and I, I have so many managers talking about the 72nd minute. And for me, I've never ever seen any piece of data ever that have said, if you make changes in the 60th minute, you're going to magically win the game. Like There is no data around timing. So what, what we've tried to do is find ways to be player-driven with, with substitutions and be like, this player needs X amount of time, whereas this player needs X amount of time. So when, let's say, obviously, we had a situation there where you've got to think two or three minutes ahead, which is tough for a manager because they're engaged in the game. But if they're approaching the 72nd minute, and, you know, I'm on the bench. I've got a little bit of data to suggest that we've got a player who's really good when you give given 15 minutes in a game of football when losing. That player then aligns with the game scenario that we're in and increases that probability of having a successful substitution, I think.
0: Is it a case as well? Like, I was just thinking there about, like, positions, right? So, rarely do you see a manager change he's, he's back to, right? He's not going to change his two centre-halves. So if I'm a centre-half on the bench, I'm probably not even making it in. And especially you look at a goalkeeper, I look at the Newcastle game last week where Dubravka's had to come on because Nick Post popped his shoulder. Mm. And it's the case of, do you have to look at it in your role positional-wise and say, right, I might have to spend maybe a little bit more time with the wingers, the strikers, because they're the ones that might really affect the game, especially if you're, say, losing or drawing and you need that, you need that win. So does your emphasis vary depending on what positions are on the bench?
2: It doesn't tend to, because I believe that, I mean, the, the substitution role in general is because football tends to be such an uninclusive environment. You know, there doesn't always tend to be very many open and in, in, in inclusive, I think being the key word there. So if I started doing that, I think I'm going against the principle that I've sort of set myself. So if I sort of think, ah, we, you know, we ain't going to make any fullback changes today. So I'm just going to get into the two strikers and the winger because I know then I'm being the the reason that we need a subs coach is that then we're making that fullback feel rubbish. So for me, I don't ever specify. I might include, so it might be like, I oh, know the centre-back's not going to play today or or the chances suggest it's sl- like low. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to involve him in the striker's preparation. So now he has a role as well. And if for whatever reason, we do go down to 10 men or centre-back pulls up, the centre-back is now also ready. So it's 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 about start trying to think of a way that you can involve everyone and, and keep everyone involved in the process. But I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't probably prioritise. Yeah.
0: Have you found as well that there's, there's some players, and I go back to like the 35-year-old versus the 18-year-old, but is there some players that almost do better as a sub than they are as a starter? Again, having looked at, 15 leagues worth of data now across three years. I, I don't
2: think there's an ideal. Um, I don't think there's... And I, I did a project a little back trying to design the ideal substitute in the Premier League. So what was the value? What was the age? What was the position? You know, we're looking at all these sort of factors and th- there, isn't, there isn't a consistent because the thing that determines being a good substitute is so dependent. And so it's not like a checklist to say, oh, he's got this, he's got this, he's got this. You know, you, you could have a 30-year-old who... James Milner is probably a great example, who is the most professional player, you know, in football at the moment, and he could probably be a brilliant substitute because he prepares himself religiously. You know, there also could be an 18-year-old who thinks, "I may never get this chance again. This might be my one shot. I've got to do everything to make sure that I'm ready to make an impact." So, I think it's almost, I suppose there is a checklist, but I don't think it's sort of detrimental by the age. I think it's determined by just whether you have a personality that's open to engaging with 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 learning to be a good substitute i think
0: yeah because like for me i being a a man united fan i kind of look at like the late 90s early 2000s with like Oli and Solskjaer who would Mm. most often not come off the bench but it seemed like he was almost like a specialist coming off the bench and getting those game winners um so it's interesting that you say that, that that's not really a a fixed way around it, whether that player is better or not. But I think it comes down to that psychological part, right? If, if you're a player and you, you said earlier at half time, if you've just hit nine diagonal balls, then you're more likely your 10th is going to be good. So like in your season, if there's a player who is coming off the bench, nine games out of 10, he might start one or two here and there. He's almost hmm. got that experience of coming off the bench and he kind of understands what his role is. Is it is it a case of understanding what your role is within that squad?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good way to phrase it because also the word experience I think can work both ways because you could have good experience but you could also have rubbish experience. So, for every Solskjaer soul there's 20 strikers that come off the bench every week and don't make an impact. Divo is another name who tends to be you know a clutch moment striker. You know, Loves coming off the bench and making an impact but every Divacarigi, there's 20 strikers that don't come off and make that impact and um, in League One that season Akin Fenwar was was a player for Wickham who who scored I think he got seven goal contributions from, from the bench in one season because his role was just to come off in the 80th or come on in the 80th minute and just pin things flip things along win headers you know use his strength and he was very, very effective at that. He also, I don't know whether there was an agreement, but he also didn't start many games that season. I think he started three games. So his role looked from the outside looking in, looked very obvious that he was a finisher that year. And the, the phrase I use is basketball do it brilliantly. There, there is someone who, when LeBron James needs to stop shooting threes, comes on for like six minutes and just does what he can and then lets LeBron go on to go, to go win the game again. And, you know, that's his job. His job is to just for six minutes to let, to let this unbelievable player rest so that when he comes back on, he's going to win you the game. And and that's his role. And as long as there's sort of alignment in that, players can learn to accept that. I don't know whether football could get to that stage in terms of having closers, but but there could definitely be a lay where we think, oh, we think you're going to be a good substitute this year. Bear with us for a couple of years. We're going to work with you, but then we're going to transition you into a starter. But but right now, this is what your role is going to look like.
0: Well, that's interesting, especially thinking about the basketball concept of like the, the constant like in and out, in and out. So, obviously, mm. over the last couple of years, we've we've changed, especially in the higher level of the game, to five subs per game. Have you seen, a, a, I saw a graphic that I think you put together um, about the Premier League versus League One, about like, the average number of subs. And I think you put in mm. there that Man City, who won the league, I think last year, actually made the fewest number of subs. Whereas I think you put in League One, that it, the team that won Plymouth actually made the most. If you could just explain more of that. Yeah, so again, what, what, what's part of this role
2: is that I do analysis on leagues and, and, and squads and players to try and find trends that allow us to then become more deliberate with our substitutions. So in the Premier League, it happened to be that in that in that particular season, the top four teams didn't make many substitutions at all. You know, when you compare that to the teams that finished sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, who were then really high in substitutions, and you think if those teams potentially lowered the amount of substitutions. Could could they potentially unlock a little, a few more points, or or a little bit more momentum in their game? But the thing that that's so important about this is it is dependent on every league. Just just like the 60th minute rule, I very rarely do I see two leagues that have exactly the same trends because there's so many different factors within these leagues in terms of the amount of games, the the standard of player, the weather, um, doing season out in the or well, doing a bit of work in the MLS. They they thought the weather was a massive factor for them in that when you play at a certain time, it's so hot that sometimes players aren't used to that it, it just, just, you know, your, your, your levels just drop. And it was like, how do we then get around this? And so there are other factors that you have to consider to sort of try and, again, the three words I use are be deliberate, consistent and effective. And, and it's trying to use the data that you just mentioned there to be deliberate, consistent and effective with the substitutions.
0: So I think that key word you said there, right, about being effective. I have a few Everton fans who are always on Sean Dyche's case that he's never sub, he's never subbing in games. But it's a case of sure. you've got to be able to substitute effectively, not frequently, not just doing it for the sake of it. Oh, I just want to, I just want to get that player in for the sake of it. It's about being effective. Um, so when it comes to someone like a Sean Dyche, is it a case of is he almost like? Very good at stubbing because he's actually trying to do it effectively rather than frequently. Yeah, the thing that I respect, and I actually just did an article with the Athletic on this very thing. He, you know, he was a
2: Everton journalist, and he said the fans are getting like more and more angry at, you know, Daish not making these changes. And it was like, he, you know, Daish said in a press conference he believes he has data to suggest that his team gets worse when they make substitutions. So I sort of like aligned that with my data, and there was there was complete alignment in the fact that you know when Everton made substitutions. Their, their technical productivity, tactical productivity it dropped off. So you're better off trying to push the 11 through and then maybe making more changes to a, to next starting 11 rather than making changes in-game to try and keep your starting 11 consistent. And I think I, I completely respect that he's trying to be deliberate with it. And I say so many times, managers just suffer the hope. It, you know, it's turning around and it's like you look at your striker and you go, let's just put him on and see what he can do. And I just think, you know, in, in today's football, like when there's every goal's worth so much, like you just can't can't take that risk anymore. Like you have to be deliberate with what you're doing. You you have to have a plan. You can't just hope that this geezer's going to come off and and
0: win you the game. It's it's interesting, right? So a lot of this conversation we've had is all about like the top level game, even like lower leagues and semi-pro, but. I'd be interested to see your thoughts on we we have a lot of grassroots coaches who listen to this podcast on how potentially any tips you could maybe give to the grassroots coach who is maybe allowed roll and roll off subs and how they could maybe effectively manage their subs because this is one person on the sideline who's probably who's in charge of maybe 5 or 6 kids from 18 to 10 years old whatever it might be is there any tips you could give to the coach out there of how to kind of help the subs yeah
2: i think like I said, I think becoming a sub- a good substitute is an education, and, and there's no reason why that e- education can't start at any level. You know, it doesn't. You don't. It's probably easier to start at that level because um, you know, you're not working with, you know, million pound footballers. You're working with lads that want to play football, so it it might potentially be a little bit easier. But something that I've said to um, I had a call with an academy, and they said, what you know, what do you think we could do? And I said, you know, what, what do you get players doing in, like, first half? Like, like what do they do? And they sort of sit there and they make notes and stuff, but it's not taken seriously. And it's like, well, what about if you challenged the subs to lead the halftime team talk? So you didn't do anything. What about if you said to those five people that you, you're going to have to analyse this game and at halftime say to the, the, the starters what do you think is going well, what do you think needs to change, and then what you think that you can bring into the game in the second half? And, you know, you'd be amazed by how much kids then, like, engage in the game actually thinking like right there's a demand on us here we we have to deliver and also you know when I come on in the second half I want to know what I need to do. So little challenges like that is 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 really important I think to to try and teach them that there's an education and that there is a process behind being a being a good substitute. another thing I suggested is how about you appoint a leader of, of your subs or your finishers or or whatever you want to refer to them as. And you say right your job today is to make sure that everyone's ready to come on as a substitute. So, you know, your job is to lead the warm-up at half-time. Your job is to, in, to go out of the 20th minute and warm-up, go out at the 40th minute and warm-up. Like, that's your job today is you're in charge of the subs. And then, again, all of a sudden, now it's their demand and it's their sort of accountability. You know, it starts to increase that level of engagement, that level of responsibility, that level of accountability, where if they're now a bad sub, it's now their own fault. So there's no – you can't blame anyone because you've not prepared yourself, right? And, and it's the little things like that that I think all – all add up and contribute to a much bigger process that you can sort of sort of implement at, at any level.
0: Yeah, I love the idea of the the first half subs leading the halftime team talk because you're you're giving them that responsibility. You're sharing power with with your players, and it's almost a case of we're in this together. But then also from the other hand is if they then go in in ten minutes into the second half and they've just delivered the halftime team talk. And surely, as long as they're saying the right things that we can, as coaches can guide them through, they should be going in and implementing those things. So that idea of leading the team talk, one, keeps the player engaged in the first half mm-hmm. because if they're not watching the game and they're looking elsewhere, they're not going to say the right things. And if they don't say the right things at halftime, coach might not put them in for a while. So I love mm-hmm. that idea, especially from a psychological point of view and that tactical point of view. But then I guess from a, a technical point of view, at the highest level, it's not like you see players on the sideline knocking balls back and forth because obviously the rules don't permit that, but I guess yes. maybe at the youth level, maybe at that half time is coaches can come up with a plan for the subs to get out there and just do some basic passing patterns. Or if you're a striker striking at the, at the goal So then, so then you're ticking every box, right? You're ticking that technical element. You're ticking the tactical and psych social part of it. Um, So, no, that's really interesting looking at it from that way. Uh, Something else on that one, sorry to jump in, but something else we've done is when I was a bit
2: younger, I was doing my FA level one or two or something like that, and I was managing like a local grassroots team um, under 16s. So what we would do with our subs is we would just have like a 2v2 set up, and every six, seven minutes, like a different two would go and have a 2v2, and then they would go out. It would be very relatable to the game because it's high intensity, it's high actions, it's high ball rolling time. Three, four minute game, come in. You know what I mean? And then next two go out, and then maybe they come back. Then we watch the game for 10 minutes as a collective, then two back out, two back. And again, like that, then when it gets to half time, they haven't just sat, sat for 40 minutes. They, they've engaged, they have a little bit of an understanding with the game, but they've also prepared themselves. And I just think that's another way, again. And I think that depends a little bit, because if you're doing that at senior football, at local football, sometimes that can be exhausting. And the thing you want from subs is energizers. So you don't want to tire them out before they get to their job, but it's finding those different ways and solutions that you can sort of innovate their role. I think.
1: I think at the simplest, at the simplest form in terms of grassroots soccer, it's almost making the player aware that you can be a good sub and having that mental switch of oh, I'm a sub, or I oh, can, I can be a good sub, and then how can I take responsibility to. Preparing myself to be, be not not a sub, but be a good sub that impacts the match and has a positive effect for the team. I think just that yeah. mental switch changes the role or how the player perceives the role, especially
2: at that young age. It's mad how much of a stigma there is around being a sub, and I don't know where it comes mm. from because it's not like it's not like you. Ne- it's necessarily publicised on TV, but but it's like somewhere along your development is as a young person. You get to be in a substitute, and you just think this is this is awful. Like this is the worst thing in the yeah, world. Amazing. And yeah, like you, you're completely right. And when when I started doing the concept, I went into some like clubs and, and asked players who said like talk to me about your experience as a substitute. And like the words were just so negative. You know, it was like disheartened, anxious, threatened. You know, unset. Like you know, words were just like this is awful. You know what I mean? And and, and like you said, it does it does correspond and relate to sort of like young young people's development in football and it's it's trying to flip that switch that like you said and saying like being a substitute is a challenge. It, it's not it's not an adverse that you're suffering. It's a challenge to say, can you go and win the game? Because if a sub scores a winning goal, no one talks about the other ten that started. You talk about the geezer that scored the winning goal. So you know it's irrelevant what what it sort of looks like, but you've got to see it as a challenge to go and go and help the team of we not me as as they say.
0: Yeah, yeah I mean I when think...
1: you called me a bench warmer at the start of this podcast, I saw that as a challenge <laughs> and uh, tried to see it positively dis- uh, up, despite yeah. <laughs> his despite his toxic behaviour.
0: Well I'm still yeah. I'm still waiting for you to step it up, so uh we'll keep yeah. it we'll keep you on the bench for now. But I think one one thing that you mentioned there about obviously the stigma behind it and I think I think it was Eddie Jones that mentioned about not calling them subs, but calling them finishers, right? And that mm-hmm. idea of maybe at the, the youngest age or even like you're you're under eighteens where that stigma still is within that is like can coaches be challenged to say, right, here's my starting eleven and here's my finishers of the game. Get rid of that I, I almost up you, getting rid of the word substitute and you're saying, right, these are the finishers. And obviously Eddie Jones had a lot of success doing it that way. Yeah, we, we had, um, so at Wimbledon, we had, I think we had 15 names
2: for our, for our substitutes. We, you know, we didn't refer to them as subs. It was finishers, energizers, closers, impactors, match winners, game changers. You know what I mean? All these terms that can all refer to a different role as well. An energizer is completely someone who goes out and changes the game. A closer is someone who goes out and sees the game. So there's, a, there's you know you can relate that as well to an education. It doesn't just have to be give them a name. There can be a little bit of rationale behind it. and, and I completely agree that, again, I think now finishes is starting to adapt the, the same stigma as substitutes because it's starting to be used so much. so it, like, I think it needs that next level of like closer, energizer match where it needs to be like another layer. But yeah, I think, I think there's definitely value in that. And when, when we we're at Wimbledon, the Twitter page that, that would say that get like the lineup at the beginning of the game, would always start to use finishers rather than substitutes in the. That's really cool. The, yeah, and it was it gave us a real change of culture. And again, when you talk about like good sporting moments, you know, to think that like Sammy Lander from Sharpsbury had a League One club changing their Twitter, you know, name for substitutes, like it's crazy to think that you can have that impact. But you've got to believe in what you're doing, I suppose.
0: No, I think uh, I think you've done some tremendous stuff already in such a short career, let's say. But I think you've got so far to go. And I think we're uh, the name Sammy Lander is going to be uh, a, a world-renowned name in in a few years to come. Um, but I got kind of a a question that I've always been wanting to ask about subs, and I think that you might be able to answer this. Obviously, at the highest level, you've got players who get appearance fees. So, is there players on the bench that are going, "Gaffer, yeah, get me in. I might get an extra couple hundred quid, or I might get a couple <laughs> of thousand? Is that the case, or are players kind of quiet with that part? So I'm actually
2: working with a team in the US at the moment um, around being deliberate with the contracts that you design for a substitute. So could there be substitution-based incentives for players? Because, um, again, you talk about trying to flip the switch on the, on the role of a substitute. Well, without sounding too uh, shallow, I think a lot of people are motivated by, by financial gain, and rightfully so with the world we're in. So, you know, having that reward around being a good substitute is being rewarded, you know. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, and I think that as long as it's clear and and it still aligns with the the we not me and that maybe the contracts aren't aren't necessarily rewarding a good substitute individual performance, but contributing to you in the larger sense to a team, you know. Like I say, we not me. Um, I think there's definitely value that could be had in it, and something I'm working with this UST now to try and design a few contracts for younger players who they think are going to be substitutes this year. Can we design some contracts that that are built around that role so that, again, there's alignment of what the player's expecting of himself this year, but also what the management team are expecting of them as as a substitute? So, yeah, I think there's definitely value in that. And like I say, it's happening in basketball, so I don't see why it can't be translated to football. I
1: think that's another example of kind of changing the perception. I know when I, you know, growing up, I used to go to Huddersfield Town matches and a sub would come on with like a minute left. And then <laughs> yeah, the 10 grumpy old men sat around me would be like, Oh, here he comes for his appearance fee, get his money yeah. <laughs> coming off the last minute. So there is definitely a perception around that. And and I think, again, it's that kind of light bulb moment, changing the mentality of substitutions that is going to change that. Definitely. Definitely. Uh,
0: no. Yeah. So Sammy, this has been a, uh, a real opening chat with you and we really do appreciate your time. Um, Hopefully the listeners have got a lot out of this, which I'm sure they will. Um, But before you do go, I'm going to need a little bit of help um, with that question we had at the start. So, Jack, if you could just repeat the question for us. And I think I've got a few now.
1: Yeah, so there are seven players to have scored 15 goals or more uh, as substitutes in the Premier League. So, seven players to score more than 15 goals in the Premier League after coming from the bench. Substitutes, can you name the seven players?
0: Yeah, so I think I've got five. I might struggle on the other two, but I was kind of thinking along the lines of which teams had like really good strikers, but they weren't maybe number one strikers, they were like the, yeah. the second strikers. So the first one, and we mentioned him in, in this episode, is Oligona Solskjaer. Correct, Oligona
1: Solskjaer, yeah. 17 goals.
0: So then another United <laughs> player who I love this player when he came on he was what we said as that, that energizer was um Chikorito, Javier Hernandez. Yeah, Javier Hernandez, nineteen,
1: 19. Yeah. Nineteen as well, wow.
0: In in probably a lot
1: in probably how many seasons did he have at
0: United? I don't know. Maybe. But yeah, last
2: nice. game. Yeah.
0: Um then a favourite player of mine who I think this, this might have came more at Liverpool, or maybe even the Stoke days, Peter Crouch. Correct, Peter Crouch. Wow. Sixteen goals bit of longevity in there as well helped with that one. (laughs) So then the next two were just kind of stabs in the dark. The one player was just because of his long tenure in the Premier League and that was Jermaine Defoe. Did he do it?
1: Um, Yeah, Jermaine Defoe. um, Actually, number one, the most goals off the bench. He
0: has 24 goals as a substitute. (laughs) Oh, wow. Interesting. Um, And then my only other guess was a player that I think should have probably started more games and doesn't get the credit he deserves for being a top player and that's uh, Olivier Giroud. Correct, Oliver Giroud. Olivier Giroud was number two with 21 goals. Uh, but the <laughs> other two, I'm struggling. Sammy, I don't know if, you, if you've got any that pop into your mind.
2: Uh, no, so my my football knowledge when it comes to stuff like this is atrocious. Well, I, <laughs> I always have quits with my mates and I'm always I, yeah, I always get found out. I'm just trying to think now, like with those names we mentioned Divock you would be up there but just because of his, his longevity of yeah. his career, I don't think he would have got enough to get over fifteen. I'm trying to think of big teams that, like you said, had that like extra man that, that wouldn't necessarily be the, the main focal point, but but enough yeah. to just chip in across a you few
1: think years. If Origi Ar- keeps playing, he's probably on track to be on this yeah. list. I think there'll be a few more seasons.
0: Go on, in Jack. Who are yeah. the other two?
1: So I'll go through. I'll go from seven to one in order. So number seven was Peter Crouch with sixteen goals from the. Bench number six was Canu, seventeen, no,
2: goals,
1: from uh, five, Surridge, 17 wow. goals from the bench. Yeah, absolute cult hero, Canu, seventeen goals from the bench. Number five, Daniel Sturridge, seventeen goals from the bench. Yeah, because he, he had a while of not really being able to establish establish himself as a starter at you know yeah Chelsea, Liverpool, Man City, so um, that would make sense. Number four was Ole Gunnar Solskjaer with his 17 goals. Famously scored a hat-trick off the bench as well. One of the only seven players to do that. Uh, number three was Javier Hernandez, Chikorito, the little P, 19 goals from the bench. Number two was Oliver Giroud, 21 goals from the bench. And number one was Jermaine Defoe, 24 goals from the bench.
0: Wow. That I would say, Jack, that's probably one of your best questions you've had. And I think the I think the listeners are going to enjoy that one um hopefully it gets me off the bench (laughs) well i'm I'm gonna change you're not a bench warmer anymore i'm gonna you're gonna be like a closer okay yeah seeing the game out i'm glad to
1: see that you're learning
0: Stu. yeah exactly (laughs) you're seeing the podcast out um i'll give you the final word you can say goodbye at the end um but no sammy from both of us um really thank you for your time this has been a, a, a really interesting chat and we we wish you the best of luck and hopefully we'll uh We'll see that your name in the in the headline soon um as we already have done um but no, thank you very much.
2: no, thank you very much folks for for the opportunity and um like i said it's it's great chatting. so um yeah I'll be looking forward to listening to it back and I, when I play back yeah I'll,
0: I'll pretend I know the answers to the to the question <laughs> at the end. yeah now yeah. now you've gotta to go to your mates in the bub and say yeah. Yeah, do you know this question because <laughs> I got them all right. Um, but no top top man um, and Jack as a closer final words with you yeah I'll, I'll close finish out the uh,
1: podcast make sure we get the three points I think that was great I, uh, I've i been convinced for sure just uh, you know there's so many things to, to, that have convinced me the longer game times the more substitutions that are allowed now kind of not leaving any stone unturned in, in trying to find every detail possible to help you win uh, and especially with how valuable every goal and every point is now in all levels of of football, um, after after this podcast, I think it's wild if a professional club's not looking into this further and not um, you know hiring someone like yourself to to do the research and to help them, um, not just the initial ways you think of substitutes in terms of warming up on the sideline physically, but all the kind of psychological and social aspects that you've discussed as well that go along with it too. So very insightful, I think, um, and I think it'll be insightful for a lot of people listening too. Awesome, thank you
2: very much. Cheers, Jack.
0: Yeah, thank you guys and uh, we look forward to next week as well. Take care.